You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Hello, and welcome to Uncovering Hidden Risks, a new podcast from Microsoft where we explore how organizations can take a holistic approach to data protection and reduce their overall risk. I'm your host, Erica Tully, Senior Product Marketing Manager on the Microsoft Purview team. And now, let's get into this week's episode. Welcome to another episode of the Uncovering Hidden Risks podcast. Organizations today are faced with high volumes of information and increasing compliance requirements. How can we successfully execute policies and meet regulatory requirements without burdening employees? Well, today we have a guest who will join us for this discussion. Patrick Chavez is the Chief Privacy Officer at Edward Jones. He leads the firm's privacy efforts and develops and implements policies and processes related to preparing for and responding to cyber and privacy incidents. He also oversees the firm's records and information management program within the legal division and provides legal guidance and advice to the firm's business areas on matters related to e-discovery, privacy, information and data security and protection, and information governance. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thank you, Erica, and thanks for having me. I really am looking forward to this discussion. Mark is the CEO of Contourall, the largest independent provider of strategic information governance consulting services, including records management, privacy, litigation readiness, and employee collaboration. Contourall, an independent provider that sells no products, serves as a trusted advisor to more than 30% of the Fortune 500 plus many mid-size and public sector organizations. Welcome, Mark. Thank you, Erica. Delighted to be part of this discussion today. And with that, let's dive into today's topic. Patrick, you manage risk programs such as privacy and records management, as well as provide legal advice in the data governance, e-discovery, and information security spaces. How did Edward Jones end up aligning its legal support for these areas? Well, it was a little bit by accident and a little bit by deliberate planning and a lot of effort. We wanted to take a holistic effort to what we call information and data protection. That's what my team is here in, in the legal division. So we already had the RIM programs, the records and information management programs and the privacy programs. Those were already in place. They, they spanned the entire organization. So our thought process was we could leverage that infrastructure that we had within RIM and privacy to influence, hopefully greatly influence, those other functional areas where I don't have direct leadership and where my team doesn't have direct leadership, but where we could hopefully influence their, their thought processes. Now, of course, that still required a lot of collaboration with those leaders. So a lot of explaining the why, what we were trying to do, how it bettered and achieved the firm's strategic ends. But once we got that why across, I think that we were able to get everyone on board. Everyone from there pitched in to, to make it happen. So Patrick, a question for you. Records management and privacy, e-discovery, information security, all of these can conflict with each other. How do you manage these conflicts? 
the world of records retention says, says you have to save it for at least this long. And sometimes we see privacy requirements that say, oh, no, you can't save it longer than this. And across all these different functions, there's right full of conflicts. How have you managed these conflicts? Yeah, and it's not a matter of that they can conflict, they will. It's just uh, we have to, to take that as, as axiomatic that they will conflict with each other. And so as leaders of the various functional areas, data governance, records, and others, we've made a deliberate effort to recognize that first, that they are going to, to conflict. And we have an understanding that we have to manage through those conflicts and we have to manage through those, those challenges. We especially see this with, with data governance. But we don't look at these conflicts as adversarial. That's really the key. So there's a tone from, from all of us as, as individual leaders that we're going to, to take a collaborative, a partnership approach to managing through these conflicts. And the goal is really to find the best approach and then work towards solutioning towards that approach. So we collaboratively look at that problem uh, and determine what's going to be the best path forward. Maybe it's a maybe it is a privacy approach to something or a legal approach to something. Maybe it's a data governance approach. But we really examine what's going to be best for the organization. Look at that path forward. Try it. Maybe we have to iterate because we chose the wrong path. But really, it's more of a holistic effort, getting everyone on board, and then just finding the best approach and not having a lot of egos about what approach is going to be quote unquote best as we look at all these. So I have a follow-on question of that, which is how many of these conflicts are really policy-oriented or legal and regulatory requirements? And, and surprise, surprise, sometimes there are legal and regulatory requirements that conflict each other. On the other hand, how much of these conflicts are sort of organizational conflicts where I've got my role and I keep my role and you've just got to get different groups of people working together, even though seemingly there's a conflict? I think many, if, if most, are probably going to be organizational conflicts. Some of them might even be turf battles. Some of them might be just flat out conflicts in policies. So I'll take the conflicts and policies. That's really what I was talking about, trying to be collaborative, trying to find the best approach, recognizing that there are going to be uh, conflicts. A data retention policy is necessarily, or not necessarily, but is likely going to conflict with a records retention policy. So we got to figure out a way to reconcile that. And there's a collaborative way to, to do that if everyone is on board in trying to solve that collaboratively and not worry about the, the the turf battle. Now, the the turf battle could be personalities. Sometimes you need an escalation channel, and maybe it's appealing to whatever the senior leaders are in that area, uh, and at least trying to recognize, at least in, in, in my view, that it's not about trying to gain turf or try to, to you know expand an empire or anything like that. It is, and, and um, I think we'll talk about this later, it is what are the strategic aims of the organization and even of, of the particular areas that are involved, if those are all aligned, then you know, maybe this is Pollyanna-ish, then we should all be driving towards the same goal and hopefully those turf battles really don't arise. But that's the tougher one uh, when, it, when it is personality-driven. The policy, I think, as long as everyone is accepting of what needs to happen and accepting of this idea that there are different ways to get to, to the happy path then that can be resolved. I sense that you went after the group organizational collaboration first. Um, and then once you have that, I imagine the policy conflicts are much easier. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Mark, looking across multiple organizations, is this 
sort of collaborative approach the biggest barrier for organizations to get started on the bigger picture? Or are there other barriers that you see? We actually see a lot of challenges. And unfortunately, it's a long list. But sometimes, as we talked about, there are clearly policy conflicts. The regulations conflict each other, and, and many times the regulations are not terribly prescriptive. A lot of times it is organizational, as we talked about, that there's one group that says, hey, this is my area. I think you should be part of my area. Another group goes back and forth. And and I think Patrick was very well spoken on how Edward Jones has approached that. I think they're one of the, one of the better models of organizations that have figured it out. But it doesn't end there. Part of it goes down to areas such as policies. I'll use an example that Patrick brought up. We see organizations with records retention schedules, and we also see organizations with data retention policies. And in some cases, they have two completely different policies, which are effectively on the same thing. Our recommendation is organizations create, and we don't care what you call it. You can either call it a privacy-enabled records retention schedule or a records-enabled data retention policy. Again, I don't get caught up in the naming of this, but what we find is that if you can have a single policy that addresses both requirements, which is how long do we have to keep something and how what's the, the maximum we should keep personal information into a single policy, get it resolved at the policy level when you're putting a single policy together versus trying to have dueling policies out there. Dueling policies is just a recipe for, for non-compliance and conflict and lots of program, problems down the road. Other issues in terms of getting organizations together is, is, to be honest, many traditional organizations, the records group, for example, has been, my job is records. All I do is records. That's records. And sometimes the privacy folks are like, our job is privacy. Well, no, we all, we all have to play with one another. And, and if you don't actually combine all the organizations, and we're seeing a lot of organizations combine both their records and their privacy function, very similar to what Edward Jones is doing, at least we have to make a conscious effort to say, hey, what can I do with my records program or my e-discovery program or my privacy program, whatever program I have, and say, not only how do I meet the specific requirements that I have in my compliance framework, but how do I make sure that what I'm doing makes it easier for other groups? And if you can go through this, we find a lot of organizations quickly realize, as Edward Jones did, that oftentimes there are common work streams. Hey, if, if you and I work on something together, we can do the same thing that will serve you and serve me. There are many, many work streams in information governance that can be handled or managed or collaborated among multiple groups. But probably the biggest barrier is getting out of the siloed mindset, saying, hey, we want to work together. And likewise, being able to communicate that to senior management to say, hey, I think we could have a better structure that would allow us not only to be more compliant, more effective, but actually save time because we won't be duplicating effort and we won't be conflicting each other. Maybe if I could dig in a little bit more into resolving the conflicts, because this is an area I see so many organizations getting stuck. Is it simply looking at a risk-based approach of seeing what the conflicting regulations are and, you know, what is the least risky approach? Or like, what are the actual aspects that go into the decision-making if you're allowed to share, Patrick? So I would say it touches a little bit on what uh, the question that Mark asked earlier about What's driving the the conflict? Is it just conflict because policies were written at the at different times or cover supposedly different things, or is it a true regulatory conflict? The regulatory conflict might actually be the the easier one because you know, if it's 
two regulations and then they, you know, one says very simply, keep things for two years and the other one says keep things for five years. Okay, if you keep things for five years, you're going to satisfy both of them. So conflict resolved there. But that doesn't always come into play. Sometimes you've got data minimization and retain something for X number of years. There's really no way to reconcile those except to say, well, I do have a requirement that I've got to keep something for X number of years, recognizing that, okay, by data minimization principles, okay, I need to probably get rid of that thing as close as I can to X number of years, because then I can I can then satisfy the, the second regulation or second obligation. So there are ways to resolve around that, I think. Um, and that's why I say it's probably the easier of the two. Um, but if we're looking at, at policies, that's a little bit more complicated because you've got to look at the reasons why some things are being kept for, say, data retention and, and records retention. Data retention, your data scientists are wanting, going to want to keep things forever because just in case that's going to provide an insight in some future analytic model down the road and records retention is going to say, nope. I mean, you know, if it's not an official record, then you got to get rid of it in, in, you know, a shorter period of time, uh, certainly something shorter than, than forever. That's where, okay, th those are, those are true conflicts and you got to figure out a way to meet hopefully somewhere in, in the middle. And maybe it's, well, if we de-identify the data, does that allow us to keep it for a longer period of time? Or, you know, is it true identification? Is it obfuscation? Do we anonymize it? Do we, you know, does that change the character of the data such that the, the data scientists can't use it? So you've got to pull on all of those little strings, I think, to try to see what is the appropriate resolution for the, uh, for the conflict. Key is not everyone's going to get what they want. The data scientists are not going to get to keep the data for forever. And the, the RIM people aren't going to be able to get it, get rid of it, you know, right at the end of, of that uh, retention obligation. But understanding what the conflict is, I think, helps greatly in trying to resolve what that conflict is. Perfect. Very practical advice. I love it. Thank you. Maybe moving on to, let's assume our policy conflicts have been resolved. How much of your past and current efforts were to understand compliance and other requirements? And then how much of it was actually applying technology and addressing it from an organizational perspective? Yeah, Erica, I'm actually going to take those in, in reverse order, the, the organizational perspective, because at least the way I translate that, it's aligning to, in my case, the legal division objectives and also our firms, our company's strategic objectives. I think that's critical. It provides that North Star. It provides that anchor, and you can anchor to something when you're asking for resources, when you're asking for support. If you can show that um, whatever you're doing is aligned, especially with, with the company or the firm's strategic objectives, then you're going to be able to make a better case for uh, resources, and, and resources are always um, a challenge. I think we're all resourced uh, challenge. So uh, being able to ask for that support is dependent on how well you're aligning to the organizational perspective, or like I said, where I translate that to, to the strategic aims uh, of the organization. Now, you asked about the technology. That piece might actually be, in, in, in my view, the least important part of the equation, especially if the program is new or is just getting off the, the ground, because I'm not sure that you really yet know what your true technology needs are. And 
a lot of times it's not just throwing technology at a problem. That's not necessarily the uh, the answer because lots of times you don't know what the problem is. So you have to figure out what the problems you're you're encountering encountering are, what the challenges that you're encountering are, and then figure out what are the possible ways of of addressing those challenges. Maybe it's people, maybe it's processes, maybe it's technology. I mean, there are technology solutions out there, but it's not just about oh, flashy technology that some vendor is saying is you know is the easy button because they never are. But really evaluating what problems do you have, what are the possible solutions, and maybe they are uh, technology. Um, you know, I am all for technology. I'm all for creating efficiencies. But I, I think looking at technology in a, in a smart way and in a, in a deliberate way is is really the the best approach to that. And then you asked about the the compliance and other requirements. Um, I, I think getting to know, especially the regulatory environment. I'm in a uh, highly regulated uh, industry. You need to know what's there, but you need to also know what's coming. You can't really build for where the puck is. You have to build for where it's headed is another way of saying that. And also, I do think that you have to build for more than just check the box compliance. And that's not because of any moral imperative, but that should be part of it. Because there will be times there's a lack of money, there's a lack of people, there's a lack of processes, there's a lack of resources, a lack of time that you actually have to resort or you have to default possibly to check the box compliance. And you at least want to be at that baseline when it comes to, to your regulatory obligations. So I, I think it's it really important not just to be thinking about what what's the minimum viable product for me to get get compliant because you you may have to do that not because that's where you want to be it's because that's the only place you can be for whatever reason and that's at least at the spot you want to be at so so i would say always you know shoot for more than just the minimum viable compliance um, in in any regard well very wise words mark i'd love to know your thoughts Oftentimes, individual groups see the need for a more enterprise-wide approach to managing these challenges, but then they struggle to build support with senior management. How have you seen companies successful in building senior-level support? Uh, That's a good question. I spent a lot of time on this exact topic. Let me talk about some things that don't work and some things that do work. Some of the things that don't work is if you, for example take out an industry framework and say, we should be doing this because I'm holding up this obscure, um, esoteric industry framework. And likewise, that same idea of, I'm going to hold up an industry framework to to show other people that this is my real estate and not your real estate. I think that's a big mistake that organizations make. That's typically not successful. One of the biggest mistakes is when you're approaching senior management is to do it alone is to say, hey, I'm just going to go as the records or the data governance or whichever group out there alone, because you're going to be a lot less successful alone. Another mistake that organizations make, and I see this a lot, is is they they feel like they have to use very technical or legalese language when talking to management. They'll, They'll almost repeat the actual verse of the legal and regulatory requirements, despite how obscure it sounds. So what works? Well, First of all, you want to work with other groups of people. And if you can approach management as a team and to say, hey, we see this, you are going to be much more powerful than if you do this as an individual. And the sooner that you can 
build bridges to other organizations and explain the fact that we've got a lot of common interest and if we we can work on the same thing that will benefit both of us. And I'm not trying to steal real estate. I really see this as a, a cross-functional effective effort. You're going to be a lot better on that. The next thing I really like is be as plain spoken as possible. The more senior presentation I'm preparing for a presentation tomorrow for the executive C-suite for a, a, a fairly large financial services company. And we're endeavoring to be as plain spoken as possible. What are we talking about? Because we, we, we like to talk about information governance or data governance or privacy or, you know, different concepts. And we're not effectively communicating if we're using fancy terms. We're, we're probably being less successful. So the more plain spoken we can be, the more clearer spoken, that's going to be very important. Probably the most important thing out there is when you're talking to real-world management, don't talk about what the company can do for your program. Talk about what your program can do for the company. And the more, and, and Patrick was, was touching on this, the more that you can touch on what are the overall corporate objectives for the year. I mean, if you're going to read the, the president's letter to the CEO, the CEO's letter to shareholders, she or he are going to distill some important points. How is your program going to help you be more competitive, uh, more agile in different markets, higher productivity, work from home, all these issues that are impacting companies? And I will make the argument that a well-thought-out records program, privacy program, data governance program, e-discovery, all these different programs can have a very strong impact on the overall corporate objectives. But it is your job as the practitioner to do the translation. Don't give obscure talk to your management and have them figure out how this is going to help the company. The more that you can provide, hey, this is how records management, this is how if we do better a defensible disposition, we'll get rid of clutter and make employees more productive. And likewise, the more that you can give real-world examples in your company on how people are struggling today and say, hey, we, we've seen this struggle, we're worried about this privacy risk. We're worried about this. Or, or paint it as a positive. Yes, a lot of people don't like the privacy requirements, but maybe you turn it around and say, hey, instead of worrying about the privacy requirements, maybe we focus on how we can understand them better and be more agile. And if we can do that better than our competitors, we're going to have a market competitive advantage. So we're, we're not fighting the landscape. We're recognizing that landscape and, and realizing how we can strategize. All of these are types of messages that resonate to senior management. So in summary, plain spoken, go as a group, show how what you're doing translates to larger corporate objectives. Doing that, you will oftentimes see some very strong, surprising support from senior management. Really good advice, Mark. Thank you so much. Patrick, maybe back to you. As you look across your programs, both in the past and current, and you're thinking of the people listening to this podcast that want to replicate some of that success, what has worked well? And then what was more challenging than you expected? I alluded to it before. Resourcing is, is always a challenge. I mean, there's never, never enough budget, never enough uh, people. But I think if you, if you lean into that and recognize that, um, uh, especially when it comes to to resourcing that if you've done some things to align yourselves to 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 goals uh, especially at the at the corporate level that you can find champions and and supporters throughout the organization i joke by hook or by crook you know when i had virtually no people that's how we got things done uh, and it's because People were aligned with uh, with what I was trying to to do, so they came out and and they supported and and 
It's a little bit different when you've got a legal or a regulatory hook where you can say, look, we really do have to do this because it's there's a legal obligation behind it. But um, if you can say, if there isn't a legal obligation behind it, if you can say, well, look, our customers expect it, our clients expect it, or that there's going to be some impact, a positive impact on on the bottom line, because even though, I mean, I can't tell you that because of the RIM program, we've saved, you know, some exact millions or or you know hundreds of thousands of dollars. But I can say that because of the RIM program, or the, uh, we'll stick with the RIM program because of the RIM program, and our associates, our employees know where to find information and can find it quickly enough. I am saving them time. I am saving the organization's resources. Quite frankly, I rely on people like Mark to be able to help me quantify what that FTE savings might be uh, as a result of, of appropriate information governance. But those are all within the mix and the, and the types of arguments that uh, that I, I think we, we want to be able to make. And sometimes it's knowing when to be tactical, when to push on a, a specific thing, and when to look at the more strategic aims and, and trying to use those to get at the resourcing that you need. So that's been... Uh, I wouldn't say it's a challenge that was more than I expected, but it it kind of ebbs and flows. Sometimes that challenge is just is greater than, than I would have would have liked. In my case, though, as far as things that have worked well, the buy-in and, and the partnership, and, I, and I've stressed that throughout everything I've been I've been talking about because I really do think that is key on the privacy side. I've always stressed, have a great relationship with, if you're the chief privacy officer, have a great relationship with your chief information security officer and that security team because you're two sides of the of the same coin uh, on the RIM side. Have a great relationship with the, the data governance organization because ultimately there are the same ends in mind. So there are great partnerships that are just natural, like the privacy with information security and, and RIM with data governance. And sometimes the the partnerships you've got to work at because they they aren't as uh, as natural as they might be. But if you come at things in a cooperative way, if you're explaining your why and you're trying to understand the why uh, of the other functional area, then that's going to be key. And especially being solutions oriented. I sit in the legal division. I am a lawyer. Um, we pride ourselves in in our area of being very solutions driven, solutions oriented lawyers. We don't want to be the stop sign or the place where ideas come to to die. You know, it's easy to say that the regs are going, the regulations are going to require something, but then it's okay. How can we get to satisfying those requirements? And and many times, you know, I have an e-discovery background. Many times, there are lots of different ways to get to that final thing that that you need. And the technologists out there are going to know that, yeah, there are tons of different ways to to get to a particular, uh, to get to a solution. It's just a matter of, well, we'll try a couple and, and see if they work. So that's the way I try to approach working with my business partners is what's the, the best way to get there where you're comfortable, where you can achieve your ends uh, while still being uh, still being regulatory and legally compliant. And sometimes it requires a bit of creativity, but that's okay. Nothing wrong with being creative. I really find that most people are not trying to completely flout regulations or the legal requirements or their obligations or even policy obligations. Many times it comes down to just not understanding what what those obligations truly are, or they think they are complying 
and that maybe I'm being unreasonable because it's like, well, it's not that's not there, Patrick. I don't, you know, you're, what you're saying isn't in that regulation, or what you're saying is not in that policy. So you're being unreasonable and and requiring me to do it. And then it's a discussion. Then it's education to maybe on my part because it's well, maybe I am overreading something, or it's well, yeah, it's not in the regulation. However. Our regulators have said X, Y, and Z about this. So I think there's a, there's a lot of give and take that can happen there. Uh, and in that case, education is the key. But yeah, the good has been the, the buy-in and cooperation with, uh, with business partners. Mark, I'm curious. I see a lot of organizations getting stuck in analysis paralysis, where they spend a lot of time working on the program, the policies, building coalitions, but then get stuck to where they're not actually executing to realize some of this ROI that they were planning for the program. What advice do you have for organizations that are stuck in analysis paralysis? First and foremost, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. You have to realize that sometimes we're faced with complicated regulatory requirements. We have lots of conflicts out there. That's just the nature of the field that we're in. And the good news is that Oftentimes, the courts and the regulators are not expecting perfection. What they want are reasonable, good-faith efforts. They want to see that I have a plan, I'm trying to do the right thing, I'm doing it consistently, and I'm checking up to see whether I did it, and if not, I'm going back and remediating it. You're right. Too many organizations are looking for the perfect policy, the perfect schedule, the perfect approach, and, and that's impossible, especially in the world of, for example, privacy, or now we're looking at AI, where it is changing almost on a weekly basis. So let's focus not so much just on the policy. Let's focus on the execution, the automation. I actually do bring up technology much earlier in the process because sometimes organizations say, well, this isn't really doable. Well, actually it is. Actually, there is technology out there like Microsoft, that would allow you to significantly automate them, but people don't understand how to use the technology, the tools to be able to do it. And showing that, hey, we follow a rule called the five-second rule. Somebody should be able to comply with records and, and privacy and these all within five seconds. And if it takes longer than five seconds, they're not going to do it. Well, you can automate that today. So we want to show it's doable. But And then finally, as I mentioned, the and Patrick, we've got to get the training out there. We've got to get the behavior change management. We've got to get people to accept that that... Not only will this help us as a company, and this this may be important for the company to avoid, you know, sanctions from some obscure regulation. It may be not obscure to the rest of us, but the employee that may be obscure regulation. But also, it just may make you as an employee or as a department or as a division more productive and more collaborative. And so, there's a lot of wins associated with these. We have to go out there and get to the point of execution, and you're going to be much better off executing imperfectly, showing you're doing things. And then doing an audit. Hey, where didn't it work? And regulators liked the fact that you did an audit. And we found some areas we weren't very good at. And we went back and remediated it. That is compliance. That is when it, what's going to give you defensibility. Not the, well, we never quite executed because we couldn't sync up our privacy policies with our record schedule, with our information security. But we're working there. One of these days we will. And that's where organizations get in big trouble because while they're still in the analysis mode, that's when the regulators come in and they said, well, we meant to do it, but we didn't. And they are going to say, no, we don't care. You're going to be safer if you move along farther. And then as we've been alluding to, tie it not only to reducing the regulatory risk, but really driving the employee productivity. That's where the win is. And so getting that 
culture of moving forward, getting the the mindset to say it's okay, we can go. And this is this is other organizations doing this successfully too. That's a big driver for it. Patrick, looking ahead to maybe 2024 and beyond, what's really top of mind for you? There are a whole host of privacy laws coming online. The privacy space, Mark just said it a minute or so ago, uh, is constantly changing, seemingly by the week. AI doesn't lessen that change, or, or in fact, it's going to hasten the change in the in the privacy space. So for me, that's one of the um, one of the challenges, but it's also an exciting place to play from a legal perspective and a, and a regulatory perspective. You know, not all the rules are written, and to the extent that that. Maybe we can still influence uh, some of those rules and, and still figure out what does compliance really mean uh, in that space. And I think it's going to be a, a whole new world, 2024, and you know, for the next few years in terms of data, especially, but privacy and what does it mean to be privacy compliant, and, and even what does it mean to to be able to use data you know, going into the going into the future. So, um, yeah, for me, it's just the the sheer pace and scope and privacy and then uh, the the AI overlay to that is just going to make it that much more challenging and exciting. I'm going to add to that. I'm going to agree. We're spending a lot of time at Control looking at AI. And AI is going to be particularly interesting because there's going to be tremendous pressure for businesses to leverage AI. It is a tremendous productivity tool. And likewise, there is going to be tremendous compliance defensibility, risk, ethical issues about using AI. And this is a great chance for organizations to get a step ahead of it, saying, how do we, how do we use this in a, in a smart, compliant, ethical, defensible way? What do we start doing now, knowing that the rules are going to be able to change in the future, but knowing that if we align ourselves to these specific principles, no guarantees, but chances are we'll be pretty good. And and I'm, I'm, I'm going to raise one more issue on top of that, which is to say that on one hand, if you're an information governance professional today, you look at all the stuff going on and it gives you a headache. And it does, because there's all these stuff going on and it seems like we get one thing and another thing comes out there and you throw an AI in the mix, huge information governance impact on AI. I'm going to argue that your organization needs leaders. Your organizations, there's, there's probably nobody in your organization today that has a spot and there's an open spot in your organization for the person or groups that can help the organizations navigate this. And so I would encourage professionals out there to sort of step up and say, hey, as opposed to worrying about how do I do this, how can I help figure it out? How can I be part of the solution? How can I, how can I help lead my organization? And people that know how to lead their organization through these challenges to help them Leverage this are going to be very, very valuable. And again, there's an open position there right now. They haven't published it yet, but I can assure you uh, there's going to be a need for somebody. And I would say the time to start stepping up is now. I would not let these challenges go to waste, I think is really the, the takeaway. I, I couldn't agree more with Mark there. Well, I feel like we could talk all day, but sadly, we're nearing the end of our time for this episode. And we do have a tradition here on Uncovering Hidden Risks which is to close out with a question for both of you. So to wrap up, I'd love to know, what is your personal motto or what words do you live by? Patrick, would you like to go first? So I guess it's more of a, more of a personal motto, but my goal is to be a 
trusted advisor and enhanced the lives of my colleagues in a positive way uh, around me. Love it. That's a really good motto, right? Make the world around you a better place, especially the people you work with every day. Mark, how about you? What is your personal motto or words that you live by? Work hard, have fun. I actually enjoy working. Not that I'm a workaholic. I can I can be as lazy as the next person, but I, I really enjoy delving into tough problems. I really love the fact that I'm surrounded by some really good people who are teaching me stuff every day. And have fun. If you're having fun at what you're doing, it doesn't really feel like work. And so, again, work hard, have fun. You know, there, there's a bit of a daredevil spirit in me right now just going, hey, let's try this or let's try that or let's do this. And, and that's, that's great fun. So, uh, yeah, sometimes I get a little tired, but hey, let's, let's, let's leave it all out in the field. Very wise words as well. Well, thank you again, Patrick and Mark, for joining us on this episode of Uncovering Hidden Risks. Have a really great rest of your day. Thank you very much. Thank you, Erica. Had a great time. We had a great time uncovering hidden risks with you today. Keep an eye out for our next episode. And don't forget to tweet us at msftsecurity or email us at uhr at microsoft.com. We want to know the topics you'd like to hear on a future episode. Be sure to subscribe to Uncovering Hidden Risks on your favorite podcast platform. And you can catch up on past episodes on our website, uncoveringhiddenrisks.com. Until then, remember that opportunity and risk come in pairs, and it's up to you where to focus. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast. Join me to learn from our experts about how machine learning and data science are transforming the SOC. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatentilpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.